You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. Tiny organisms, known as microbes, which are too small to be seen without a microscope, play a key part in cheesemaking. We delve into the fascinating world of microbes with Bronwyn Percival, co-author of Reinventing the Wheel, and cheese affineur Josh Windsor of Murray's Cheese in New York City. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese... Very happy to have with me today Bronwyn Percival, author of a fascinating book about cheese called Reinventing the Wheel, Milk, Microbes and the Fight for Real Cheese. Good morning, Bronwyn. Morning, Jenny. Now, Bronwyn, it's you know, an old friend of the programme. It's lovely to have you on it again. And I happen to know that microbes are something you're absolutely fascinated by. And I think for a lot of people, you know, they don't really realise quite how important microbes are are to cheese. But I thought we'd start with in a very sort of basic way. Perhaps you could explain to us that term microbe, what does it mean? So when we refer to microbes, we're really referring to the entire world of microscopic organisms, organisms that are really much too small to see with the naked eye, but which, as you mentioned, play a really fundamental role in cheese making, both in the initial stages where you're turning milk into curd, but also really crucially in the ripening stages when you're turning that curd into some ripened cheese with extraordinary flavours. Microbes are central to all of those processes. So are bacteria, you know, are microbes, I'm guessing then, is that right? So yes, absolutely. Microbes in the cheese making sense really refer to three different things, bacteria, yeasts and moulds. And so the bacteria are important both in the cheese making, the initial stages and in the ripening stage, depending on the style of cheese. And then yeasts and molds really come into their own during the later stages of maturation. Essentially, they're our partners in developing flavour. Now, it's interesting because you've explained that, you know, microbes were not seen with the naked eye. So presumably our knowledge of them has, is a sort of, in, in the history of, of cheese making, is our knowledge of microbes something that comes along in later later stages then. Indeed, and it's really extraordinary to think that cheese was made for hundreds if not thousands of years before anybody actually knew that there were such things as microbes, what they were doing or the role that they were playing in cheese making. So you see cheese making understood as a process, but really even the idea of acidification being driven by lactic acid bacteria, which is the fundamental way in which, um, you know, cheese is, milk is preserved as cheese, really only being beginning to be understood at the, you know, in the, at the end of the 19th century. So really in the blink of an eye of history of cheese. Mm, Isn't that amazing? And as I say, how impressive that all the cheesemakers, you know, were making cheese successfully for so long within a way, in sort of in a way working in the dark, one might say then, I suppose. 
it's really it's really interesting to sort of put yourself in the mind of a of a pre-modern cheesemaker and to see the process as they might have seen it as one of um, adding rennet to milk and uh, manipulating curds, but really not one of microbe farming, even though realistically microbe farming is exactly what they were doing. Um, the, you could, uh, the process of cheesemaking really developed through trial and error over, you know, over many centuries across many, many thousands of farms in different places in different ways. But unwittingly, each of those processes develop as a way of, of herding and farming microbes to make the cheeses that people, people learn to make. That's a wonderful way of putting it. And it's a wonderful resonance, then, of course, to, to the farming of animals that we can see, like cows and sheep, you know, which, <laughs> again, is essential to, to cheese making. And then, yet, yeah, this whole sort of invisible world that, you know, that wasn't known. And so, perhaps we could unpick slightly. So, within the world of microbes, and if we talk about bacteria, presumably they're good bacteria and bad bacteria from the cheese making point of view. Is, is that a correct thing to say? I think that's the way that we understand most bacteria these days, or at least most cheesemakers understand bacteria, as these are our friendly bacteria that perform a role and are functionally useful to us. And then there are another category of bad bacteria, which are path potential pathogens and could make people sick if they end up in the wrong place or grow to high levels. And in a way, that, that sort of mentality. Um, there's a really interesting um, anthropologist operating in the U.S. called Heather Paxton, and she says she talks about what she calls a Pasteurian mindset, which is really epitomized in this idea of classifying bacteria as good or bad and really aiming to get rid of all the bad ones and just put the good ones where you want them, when you want them. And I think the more that we've learned about the way cheese and farming actually work, the more our mentality is shifting towards that of ecologies and understanding oh. that maybe nothing is necessarily good or bad or good and good and bad as a social construction obviously pathogenic bacteria can make us sick and we really don't want to have them in our cheese but rather than this idea of um, writing off anything that can be a pathogen as um, an unfriendly bacteria that we don't want I think understanding more about um, the idea of things being out of balance being the mm. fundamental problem. That's interesting. So it's a more complex, so in a sort of sense, it's like an ecosystem then of bacteria and we need to, what to sort of deepen, make our understanding more complex of it then? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think I'll, I'll just qualify what I said right there because I don't want people to take away from this that Bronwyn says that it's fine to have pathogens in your cheese because that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> but if you, look, if you look at the annals of... Um, scientific literature, particularly in medical um, medical reports, you can see that there are many examples of people getting sick from infections of lactic acid bacteria, the very same bacteria that we want to encourage to grow to incredibly high levels in the cheese. And in fact, um, the same thing is true of ripening bacteria. The same bacteria that can grow on the outside of a cheese and create delicious flavors are also associated with infections if they're um, in the wrong place, out of balance with the other microbes that are there, and perhaps in immunocompromised individuals. And that doesn't mean that eating those cheeses presents a risk that somebody will get infected with them, but only to say that bacteria's, um, a bacterium's utility to us is definitely unlinked from any idea about whether or not that same exact organism could make somebody sick in a different circumstance. That's interesting. Okay. And perhaps we could 
unpick it slightly because you mentioned there um, lactic acid bacteria. Perhaps again, perhaps you could talk us through bombings. I think people, this idea that microbes play a part in ch- in cheese making for someone who's not a cheesemaker, it can be very abstract. Could you mm. sort of talk us through a concrete example of what you know you you choose <laughs> what, <laughs> some, what something is is doing within you know within cheese making? Take take us take us into that that world, this very complex world of of bacteria. Of course. I mean, I think it makes sense to start with the lactic acid bacteria because these are omnipresent in almost every kind of um, of cheese that we have. Lactic acid bacteria will play a part. And really, ferment, uh, cheese making is a process of preserving milk. That's the whole reason we're doing it. And it's preserved for two reasons. The first reason is that we're taking loads of moisture out of that milk. So we're making it um, much drier. And that mm-hmm. is is a preservative factor. And the other thing that's happening is that we're fermenting it. And that fermentation is a microbial process. It's a bacterial process specifically. And the role that the lactic acid bacteria play is that they take these very digestible sugars in milk and they transform them into lactic acid, which is a molecule that is, um, as you can imagine, acidic um, mm-hmm. and that um, actually then that high acidity level will discourage other spoilage microorganisms from um, from taking hold there or from growing. So at once it's digesting, it's taking away something that is very, very prone to spoilage, the lactose, and then it's turning it into something, the lactic acid, that's a preservative at the same time. And in the process, it's getting some food for itself, it's making energy, and uh, it's growing to very, very high levels within the cheese. And so that that process of micro, like bacterial fermentation is really fundamental to cheese production pretty much across the board. That is pretty brilliant then, isn't it? I mean, for, from a human <laughs> point of view, that, that the lactic acid bacteria are, you know, yes, are not only cre- they, that they're creating an, an environment that is discouraging spoilage yeah Yeah. isn't that brilliant wow it is and and it's not limited to cheese i mean those same lactic acid bacteria are also performing pretty much the same role in uh pickles like kimchi in sausages fermented salamis you Mm. know that this this phenomenon is not in any way limited to milk yeah no i mean fermentation which you know which is now ever so fashionable in a way, but yet, of course, has been so much, such a long part of our human diet and played such an intrinsic role. But I think, again, just we hadn't realised quite how important it was. Um, yeah, I mean, we, Sandal Katz is such a fascinating man. If anyone's interested in reading more about fermentation, do read his books. So, yes, and so thank you, Bormi. That's very lucid and interesting. Could you also then talk about yeast and moulds, which you mentioned as, as playing a part in later stages, and again give us examples of, of how that would work in cheese making? So in the same way that interesting milk is primed with its own population of lactic acid bacteria, it also contains you know, very low population generally of, um, of other microorganisms that are not bacteria. And these are our fungal populations, which include yeasts and molds. And because these um, are aerobic organisms, meaning that they need air to grow, they're really not operating in the, in the milk vat as, it's, as the cheese is being made. If you can imagine, um, inside a vat of milk is a pretty low oxygen environment and these lactic acid bacteria really don't like oxygen that much. So that's an anaerobic process, a process that mm-hmm. happens without oxygen. But then as the cheese is made and is maturing, these more aerobic um, microorganisms, the yeast and the molds, 
um, and to a certain extent aerobic bacteria, um, but we're focusing on yeast and molds right now, start growing on the outside of the cheese and forming a rind. And that's what, you know, we, we can see very clearly with our eyes, the pop, you know, the, the microbial mass that are formed by these yeast and molds uh, as cheese rinds, because when you get billions of microbes in one place, you do start to be able to see them. It's interesting. So that's, and it's one of the things, you know, I often talk when I'm talking to cheesemakers is, uh, you know, the, what they're doing in order to try and encourage what they want, you know, let's say geo. So geo trichum is something that often comes up mm-hmm. um, as, as something that, that cheesemakers want. Perhaps you could talk us through that. And I get the impression when I talk that some, some microbes are easier to cultivate in a way and than others. I don't know if that's true or not. I think, I think it probably is. Um, so geo, and depending on what continent you're listening from, you could hear it just, um, as geotricum or geotrichum. We tend to call it geotrichum over here. Um, is an interesting microbe um, and very fashionable in the world of soft cheese these days. Um, it is a an organism that has mold-like features and yeast-like features, but you can really recognize it on the outside of soft cheeses and lactic goat cheeses. It's the one that looks a bit brainy and sort of cream colored, <laughs> like a very soft moleskin. It's a lovely, you know, you ask many cheesemakers what their favorite, what their favorite Easter mold is, and they all will say that it's, uh, that it's Gia. Um, it's um, really the, uh, the darling of the cheese world. <laughs> um, I'm, yes, I'm very, it, I mean, yes, for me, it signals a, a delicious cheese I'm going to enjoy eating. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah. Sorry, carry and, on. And, yeah. and it's very interesting because it is great on its own, um, and it can form those really beautiful goat cheese rinds for example, or the rind of a cow's milk cheese like St. Jude is a, is a geo rind, but it also plays a really important role in concert with another very important cheese ripening mold, penicillium, um, on the coat of things like breeze. So with sort of, um, I want to say old fashioned cheese making, but it's probably a bad term because by old fashioned, I'm referring to sort of the cheese making of the 1970s and 1980s, where you were looking for these really flat white penicillium rinds that mm. were fairly uninteresting, but looked sort of quite bland and like driven snow. And you can still find them on the surface of many, um, of many cheeses. And mm-hmm. I suppose some people, some people do like them, but they can tend to be quite papery and cardboardy. Nowadays, people who are making those soft ripened cheeses that are the sort of brie and camembert style will often inoculate their cheese with both geotrichum and penicillium. And they'll use what's called microbial succession, sort of the way in which one species paves the way and alters the environment for the next one to grow. Geo is very good at growing on the surface of very fresh cheeses within the first couple of days, and it paves the way for a much more thin and, dare I say, elegant kind of coating <laughs> of penicillium. So if you look at the rind of something like the Tunworth or the Baron Bygod, that's mm. a rind that, you know, we think about it as a mold ripened, you know, a, a white mold ripened cheese, both of yep. those. But actually, if you look closely, there's a base coat of this yeast. And then on top of it, once it's paved the way, the penicillium grows, but it gives you that lovely wrinkly appearance. And it also gives you a lot more complexity of flavor. A lot of the more cabbagey sort of mushroomy notes that we associate with that, the most interesting varieties of those styles of cheese. Wonderful. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I mean, that's so, so fascinating. And so, do, uh, you know, one, one of the things we've talked about, um, in fact, to you, Bronwyn, is about raw milk as opposed to pasteurised milk. And so from, uh, so is there a feeling in the cheesemaking world that if you're making raw milk, which has a presumably a larger community of microbes because it's not been 
treated in order to get rid of some of them. Is this is this a is this a, a potentially very interesting way to go to explore the sort of, to harness the microbial richness when it comes to making cheese? Well, certainly, and you know it's it's very interesting because it's not as simple as saying oh if you pasteurize then you get rid of all the microbes in the milk. As we were talking about before, certain microbes from all of the different categories yeast, molds, bacteria are thermodynamic and they will survive pasteurization, and other ones will be killed. So you're changing the microbial balance of the milk whenever you do a heat treatment of any kind in whatever way. And then really it's, um, it's, so if you want the best, you know, the most complete expression of a milk that you farmed expressly for cheese making, obviously raw milk is going to give that to you in a way that if you're heat treating you, you, you won't necessarily have. That said, I would say another really important factor is what sort of an environment you're creating for those microbes to grow. Because the amazing thing about microbes is that when you give them the right conditions, they'll go through a process of exponential growth that will mean that you end up with, you know, you have one, one cell, one organism can turn into millions or billions of organisms in a relatively short time. And mm. as a result of that, all you need is a very small initial number and the right conditions to create something that's very pervasive within the cheese. Um, and controlling those environments, both in terms of how you manage the make, but also the maturation, can have a huge impact on the microbial communities that ultimately develop. That's interesting. So, and I, one of the things, again, we've talked about, I've talked about on this series is sort of cheese maturing and care and attention and creating. So is it that thing where the cheesemaker knows that if they put, if you want, let's say, I don't know, if you're making a washed rind cheese and you want a particular result, that you put it in an environment that will help that result come? Is that is that part? There's a whole set of, of conditions, of environmental conditions that the cheesemaker yes. or the, whoever's doing the maturing will, will use then? Absolutely. And by conditions, I mean not only sort of what's the temperature and humidity of the room that you're putting into, but how are you actually treating the surface of the cheese? Are you washing it with water? Which, of course, is going to have a really big impact on sort of aerobic molds that need air um, and maybe encourage some different ones that, uh, that, that don't mind being washed every day or every other day. Um, so yes, absolutely. The conditions and then the treatment of the cheese will really, is the cheesemaker's opportunity to sort of influence the evolution of those microbial communities and sort of zero in on the combinations that they want in order to produce the best and most interesting appearance and flavour. And, you know, Bronwyn, do you see in British cheesemakers um, a desire to explore this sort of you know, in a way, the complexity you've talked about, about the microbial world. Is this something that you're seeing cheesemakers, they, you know, when I talk to cheesemakers, you get the sense there's so many different factors that they're working with. But is this something that they are, they find exciting and interesting, you know, to, to explore? Are they taking steps to try and sort of work with it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, what we can see is really um, more than ever people wanting to increase the sophistication and the complexity of the communities that are growing within and on their cheeses and use that as a route to, to making cheeses that are unique. There's also, I think, more tools available to us than ever before in terms of things that you can add to your milk or spray onto your cheese that will give you very particular effects. So, for example, there's a company in Normandy that is a culture house and is working with the University in Normandy to sort of catalog and propagate its collection of 200 different strains of geo or more than that. Uh, each of which are listed according to their characteristics. So there's some that are whiter and some that are more furry and some that they describe as having a sort of hedgehog-like texture with little, huh. you know, little 
little uh, sort of spikes sticking up and so on and so forth. And that really for cheesemakers now you have almost the capacity to dial in exactly what kind of flavors and um, aromas and appearances that you want by uh, being quite sophisticated about what you're adding. I think that's extremely exciting from a sort of practical perspective. And then the other thing that people, in my opinion, need to be thinking about is the difference between harnessing uh, the commercial cultures, which are theoretically available to anyone who buys cultures from that same culture house and really being able to propagate the ones that are in your milk and truly an expression of your farm. And I think there will be roots for uh, interesting cheeses to be made using all sorts of techniques. It's exciting, isn't it? And then, you know, and of course, one of the joys of, you know, in that, that latter point you were making about using the microbe as an expression of, of where you are. And then, of course, this means that, you know, that when we're, you know, cheesemakers in America, cheesemakers in around the world have got the chance in a way to make something that is very unique then to, to them. Mm, absolutely. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, provided their milk has something interesting to say and that they can harness it correctly, you have capacity for, for really incredible and extraordinary diversity. One of the interesting things that came out of a study that was done in France a few years ago, again in Normandy, where they've done a lot of work on lactic acid and ripening bacteria, is a catalog of different, you know, different strains of lactic acid bacteria. They just went to a few different farms and cultured what was in the milk and found um, new strains of Lactococcus lactis, which is the key, you know, lactic acid bacterium for making camembert style cheese. And many of those strains had no, you know, had very little relation to the strains that were in the library. And they were finding that actually the, the diversity that was out in the world was so much greater, even in a well-known organism like Lactococcus lactis, than, than they had even fathomed. And so I do think that there is an enormous potential to discover diversity that we don't even know exists yet and to put it to work for us uh, making delicious cheese. Wonderful. That's a very exciting thought. But it promised, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your, your insights and knowledge with us. It's really much appreciated. Thank you, Bronwyn. It's been a pleasure. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop, enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. So this week on A Slice of Cheese, we're looking at the sort of fascinating world of microbes. I'm very happy to have with me all the way from New York, Josh Windsor, Afana. Hello, Josh. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me on. Josh, I did think of you because I follow you on Instagram and your feed is sort of fascinating with these beautiful photographs of moulds growing on cheeses and your very eloquent descriptions. Um, so I thought it'd be lovely to talk to you about it. I mean, perhaps we should start by saying, explaining to people, you know, what an Afana does and why you've got this very special insight into that sort of world of microbial activity in cheese. Uh, certainly. So an Afanor is anyone who ages cheese. So I, I think technically the term means to complete or finish a cheese uh, from its Latin roots. Uh, but it's the, it's the person who takes uh, cheese once it comes out of the mold 
uh, and sees it through the journey until it's ready to be eaten, whether, you know, over a couple of days to, to a couple of years. Um, and then, you know, Afinors can be, you know, independent of cheese makers, um, like in the production of Comte. Um, they can be part of the creamery production cycle, um, as most are. Or uh, in the case for myself, I work with uh, Murray's Cheese in New York City, so we are a cheese retailer. Um, but we also do our own affinage on, uh, on a select handful of cheeses that we they produce. That's good. Thank you. That's very clear. And and so I was thinking, Josh, you know, and you mentioned that, in fact, you know, cheeses can take days or weeks or months or years to, you know, to reach the point at which you'd want to sell them. So you've got this incredibly sort of close, you know, contact, haven't you, with the cheeses, because it is a lot of care and let's give us an insight into some of the things that you would be doing as an Afrener. Uh, certainly. Uh, we work with a wide variety of cheeses. Uh, this morning, I spent my entire morning uh, washing washed drying cheeses, uh, aptly named. Um, for example, with, with that particular cheese, um, you're taking a, a green cheese, a fresh, unaged cheese, and you're washing it in a saltwater solution. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is done in order to selectively develop the rind. Um, you're, you're basically creating an environment for a specific microbes um, to form on the outside of that and set the path and direction of that cheese ripening. Um, other activities are, are so, so in our caves, I think is, is the easiest way to describe it. We have four unique caves and environments in which we age cheese and each is dedicated to a specific style of affinage. Um, so our washed Brine cheeses are done in our, in our wash drying cave. Uh, we have a bloomy cave for our soft ripened bloomy cheeses, and this is where we're developing um, cheese rinds that are almost monocultures. They're single species of mold um, or yeast on the outside of it. So these are like your camemberts and, and breeze um, or your ashed goat cheeses. Uh, we have a natural cave, uh, which is a natural rind, which is which is probably the most um, diverse genetically uh, in mm. terms of, of rind formation, where it's, I often describe this as, as non-interventionist affinage. You're doing <laughs> as little as you can to, to uh, influence the, the rind and just allowing whatever's in the environment and what comes in on the milk and from the creamery to, to grow on the outside of the cheese. And then we have an alpine cave where we're really relying on the microbes um, that are interior to the cheese uh, that came, that were originally used to acidify the milk to to develop and age that cheese. And the rind is more just a casing and less of a microbial population. Right, that's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, it is that, and perhaps we should also explain that a lot of cheesemakers, when they make cheese, they they put in microbes and they use these, what are called starter cultures, aren't they? Perhaps you could tell us what starter cultures are broadly. I realise that they're, they're varied, but just give us a broad stroke picture what a starter culture might be for a cheesemaker. Yeah, the majority of starter cultures are, are what we call lactic acid bacteria or lab. Um, and so these are, these are bacteria that uh, feed on lactose, the sugar that is in milk. Um, they're able to metabolize it to break it down. Uh, and part of the, the process of that uh, creates lactic acid. So in beer making and brewing, we use a yeast called... Um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae to consume the sugars, the malt that is in in the in the wort, and turn it into alcohol and carbon dioxide. In cheese making, we turn lactose into lactic acid. Because you talked about having, you know, the um, with your alpine cheeses that the sort of you know the activity is internal, isn't it? It's not on the rind. So you have that's another really interesting difference between cheeses. That some of them 
for some, the activity is very much taking place on the rind. And I suppose for you, is that so for you as an affineur, are these the cheeses that are particularly interesting? Is that, are these the ones that you watch over, you know, very closely? Yeah. So, so all cheese ripens from the inside, right? So the, the lactic acid bacteria that was, that was there um, from, from the start eventually starts to die off and those cells break open and, and the enzymes that are in there um, contribute to the flavor and textural development of the cheese. But if you, if you leave that rind exposed to air, then you get microbes um, from, from the environment that also populate the outside of that cheese. Um, and, and those can, can ripen from the outside in. And so for like on your bloomy style cheeses, those are the ones that develop that beautiful cream line, that, that spot between the rind and the paste that starts to ooze and you know often tastes like intensely of mushroom mm-hmm. um, on that. All of that is from the microbial population that's growing on the outside of it. That, that mold penicillin camemberte uh, really loves the protein. It feeds off the protein in the cheese and starts breaking it down, and that's what actually forms that cream lime. Um, and 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 that process of breaking down the proteins also creates a vast array of aromatic chemicals that become the flavor of the cheese that you just can't get without a rhyme formation on it. Right. I mean, yes, I think. You know, it's so interesting, isn't it? How does cheese get its flavour? And obviously, microbes are so essential to it, aren't they? I mean, you must be very aware of that, Josh. Let's talk us through a, a cheese, you know, coming in, let's say, you know, a very young cheese. You, you pick whatever one you want and take us through with you on what you would be seeing and feeling and smelling as an affineur in terms of its sort of my, microbial activity on the cheese and things that you'd look out for and the things you would be worried about. Oh, certainly. Um, let's see. A good example of that would be the ash goat cheeses. Um, so uh, these are, are cheeses that are modeled after the classic Lower Valley cheeses like Bath and Say and Salsa Share. Um, so these cheeses come in green um, and the, these cheeses are, are highly acidic when they first come in. So if you were to, to taste one of them, they would taste uh, pretty much like fresh chev. They would be a little salty, um, but not a lot of aromatic complexity on them. Mm. Um, maybe a little bit of milkiness, um, but really just bright tangy acid and salt. And the these cheeses age with a very particular yeast called uh, Geotrichum candidum. And you it's it's easily recognizable uh, in the end product because it looks like this like brainy labyrinthine pattern all around the cheese. Yes. Um, so that all of those, that's the yeast geotrichum. And uh, geotrichum does not like an acidic environment. And so since we're starting with a very high acid cheese, we need to do something to reduce the acidity on the outside of it. Um, and we do that by adding charcoal or vegetable ash to the outside. Mm. It's an alkaline product. And, and so that deacidifies the outside of the cheese. And then that cheese will go into a drying room. Um, and the, the hope is from, the, from an affinage uh, perspective is that by putting it in an environment that is warm and um, a little humid, but not as, not as humid as the aging cave um, on it, that we give the, the geotrichum a head start above all the other molds and bacteria that could be in the environment, that, that we create the perfect condition by deacidifying the rind, managing the temperature and humidity that, that geotrichum starts to form on it. And that happens you, you, usually between 24 to 40 hours, you'll start to see um, a small amount of, of this yeast forming on the outside of it. And it's like a, it's like a soft pillowy blanket. It doesn't, hasn't formed those deep ridges in oh. the final cheese, yeah. but the, it will start to dull in color. And this is often called the, the, the jolie robe, the, the petite 
beautiful dress that the that the oh. cheese will wear. Very lovely. What a lovely expression. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. The French have delightful phrases for, for the rinds of cheeses. Yes. That's that's sort of perfect, isn't it? As they should. Yes. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. Brilliant. So then what happens with, with that? that So that this sort of this little patch, does it start to grow? Is it fighting off other? Is it in competition with others? Is that one of the issues? Yeah. It's, it's the entire development. It will, it, it will be in competition with others. Um, in these early stages uh, is when it's most vulnerable. Um, and so it gets the most attention. So it's going to start feeding on this nutrient-rich cheese that, that we gave it to, to feast upon. Uh, and it will start breaking down the fats and proteins that are, that are in the cheese. And it will start to develop the cream line. And if you keep, keep a high temperature in a moist environment, the, which the yeast really likes, it will feast very, very quickly. And that, that cream line can develop and turn, and turn the cheese into soup overnight Um, so it's too much (laughs) it's too much so then then we're using temperature and humidity to slow the process down so we'll start to cool the 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 cheese off uh and we will start drying out the room more and more so that as the cream line forms we're evaporating more liquid so it doesn't it doesn't just become soupy uh we're also flipping that cheese because the proteins are breaking down calcium is getting released into the cheese that's going to drop to the bottom of the cheese. So the cheese needs to be flipped over so the calcium evenly distributes. Oh. Uh, in cheese making, we often refer to, to calcium as the glue that holds everything together. So, so calcium mm. is very important in the structure of cheese. Uh, and then, then the, and once the, the rind is completely formed and, and we're pretty sure that the, the geo has won out and it is going to, to, to be the, the big ripener of the cheese, it, we move it out of the drying room uh, and into, into the cave environment, which is a a very cold or cool temperature, high humidity, um, which which then um, allows the, the cheese to ripen over the last week or so of its age. Um, and, and it's more of a slow process. So, so it's, a, it's a not really overly developing the cream line, but just allowing um, the aromatic qualities of the cheese to develop during that time. And so by the end, how many weeks would you have invested in looking after this cheese by the time you, you know, when, when you think it's ready then? For these style cheeses, they're in our caves two weeks. So from the time right. that, that we ash them to the time that we wrap them and them. And what would the what would you consider a good example? What what would you be looking for? Until you talked about you know flavour and aroma, um, what are the things that you'd be looking for in a you know in a well ripened you know example of, of an ash cheese? Uh, yeah, certainly. So so over that time, um, there's there's going to be a big textural change. Um, instead of uh, being kind of creamy and and a, a little crumbly, like breaking off and and big pieces. The, the paste will have, have condensed a bit, so it's going to taste a little saltier and, and it's going to be smoother uh, mm. throughout the, the body of the cheese. The cream line will have developed a little bit, so you'll have that oozing portion. Um, the acidity will have dropped significantly because that lactic acid is part of what's combining with the broken proteins to create the aromas. Um, so it's going to be much milder and less bright and tangy. Um, and then with those particular cheeses, they have a whole world of earthy aromas. Um, <laughs> often, you know, where where you get button mushroom on on your camemberts, these are more like 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 foraged oyster mushrooms, just a little oh, more nice. robust yes. in there yeah. in there. In there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Wow, have I mean, so it's such sort of close work, isn't it, Josh? I mean, and then some cheeses. So is it sort of source of fascination for you to watch these microbes? But and I did wonder, are they things? Are there unwanted moulds or microbes that you just really like? Oh no, you know, as you know, as an Afrino, would your heart just sink? You think, oh my goodness, I did not want to see this, you know, in my in one of my rooms. Uh, yeah, and that and that cheese, anything other than the <laughs> the geo uh, that grows on it. So the, the mucor is. Is a, a mold that um, bloomies uh, can form. Mucor is everywhere in the world. It is it is a mold uh, that it, in the ecosystem its primary uh, role is is to break down plant matter. So it's like you'll see it a lot in the fall when when leaves are falling from the trees. Um, it's a good it's a good biodegrader, um, but it shows up in cheese. It's actually the same mold that is used to age uh, sun nectar. Um, oh. So some cheeses you want to, but right. on bloomy cheeses, it it uh, it it's um, it's kind of it's, when people see it for the first time, uh, they're a little shocked by it. The, the nickname for this mold in the cheese world is cat hair mold, and it looks <laughs> much like the fur of a cat, which can be kind of frightening in a, in a bloomy style cheese. Yes. Uh, and it, it can overproduce some very pungent, earthy aromas uh, in the cheese when it forms. A small amount is not going to do too much flavor. It's just going to look a little off. But in large amounts, it can definitely change the right. texture and the flavor. I mean, do you think that, you know, humans are, you know, that word mold or bacteria, you know, they're very, they often, they've got a very sort of negative um, associations with them, I think. You know, people don't you know it's partly why i wanted to do this program actually was to sort of explain that you know they're good bacteria and bad bacteria and, and in fact well you know surrounded by bacteria and they're doing so much all the time that we often don't understand or because we don't see you know particularly what's happening so is that part one of your roles do you think that do you do you find yourself explaining i don't know if you tell friends that you're a an affineur and then do you start sort of enthusing about moles and trying to get them to to see them in a new way uh, 100%. Uh, it's part of the reason why I, I talk about mold so much and, and get excited about it. Um, you know, one of the really interesting things about a lot of the foods that we eat, but cheese being one of them, is that they're they're fermented. You know, we they're controlled spoilage. We extend mm. the shelf life of these of these foods by by having some control over their spoilage, so they're not rapidly spoiling, um, but but we're 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 intervening to to allow that spoilage to happen over time and this is you know bread is controlled spoilage beer is controlled spoilage and cheese is and and my microbes that often we would think of as being spoilage microbes um, play a role in 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 that and so it's a fine line between between what is what is a delicacy and what is what is spoiled and a lot of that is culturally determined mm. um, you know for us as humans and and so we everyone has a different relationship to fermented foods and and mold growing on foods um, so I like to just be upfront about it as much as I yes. can to get people yeah. to understand that it is a it's often it's just a perspective and not necessarily something to be feared yeah that's a very good point I mean in fact I was struck by the way it, when you talk about um, you know the bacteria and the mold, Josh. You sound affectionate. You know, you sound like you've yeah. You sound really fond of of what's growing on the cheeses. And is that you know? Is that am I imagining this or is this is this true? Uh, no, I have a few. <laughs> <I love those laughs> um, you know, working as an entrepreneur, you you don't get to see the inside of the cheese most of the time. So so you're spending all of this time tending and caring for and ushering a cheese. Towards towards its you know final delicious 
product. And the only indication you have is is the rind, is these microbes that grow on the outside. So we don't know a lot about most of the microbes that grow on the outside of cheeses. So a lot of the time is just speculating and wondering what is an indication of it going the right way and what is an indication of it going the wrong way. Um, a lot of trial and error. And so, you know, they're, they're, they are something that like a farmer has fondness for the crops that they grow. It's very, very similar relationship. I mean, again, isn't that interesting? Because so much of, and as you know, Josh, you know, I'm talking to cheesemakers and, and cheesemongers and people who work with cheese and affineurs, you know, what always comes across actually is the complexity of, of making cheese. Like there is actually so much we don't understand, you know, despite the thousands of years we've, humans have been making cheese, which I think is part of its allures of cheese, that it's not as simple, it's straightforward. It's an intriguing, fascinating, changing food, isn't it? Which, you know, which absolutely is a sort of living with this microbial activity. This is, this is life, isn't it, that you're, you're working with? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's equal parts science, craft and mystery. Which, yeah, lovely. Well, you sound very content. Brilliant, Josh. Listen, thank you so much for taking time out of all your careful cheese tending to, to tell us about the wonderful world of microbes. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Josh. Oh, thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.